Athletic. Hello, I'm Ian McIntosh and welcome to the Football Manager Show by The Athletic, the podcast that might not be entirely match fit. But who cares? The first teaser trailer for FM22 has dropped and we've been going through it like it's the Zapruder film. What do we know? How excited are we? And what exactly is an overlapping centre-back? We're joined by TIFO's tactical genius, Seb Stafford-Bloor. Speaking of positions, CJ Ramson is here as well to discuss what might be the least used position of all, the centre midfield defend. What is it? And why would you? We've also got your letters and we've got Alex Stewart answering the question, what else do you play? So let's get cracking. Seb Stafford-Bloor, as I live and breathe, welcome to the show. Ian McIntosh, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. The only sadness, it is bittersweet, because you and I were supposed to both be in the athletic office today, and it would have been the first time I'd interviewed someone on a podcast in the same room since the awfulness of the pandemic. But as you can hear, I'm not not in the best of health right now, so we, we have to do this remotely. Yeah, I'm not so sad about it because you sound terrible and we're, we're, we're hugging <laughs> friends. So having not seen you for a couple of months, we'd have hugged, I'd have contracted whatever terrible logie you seem to have got. And then, I mean, sad not to see you, but not too sad. <laughs> Equally quite relieved. Um, for those who don't know you, what exactly do you do all day? I suppose... I'm still really a football writer by trade. So my day-to-day is I head up the editorial of TIFO's Illustrator channel. So that means writing scripts, editing scripts, commissioning ideas, working on the podcast with the guys, the other guys at TIFO, Joe, JJ and Alex, dabbling a little bit of the IRL stuff on the new channel, which has launched, writing the occasional article for The Athletic here and there, and uh, despairing about Tottenham. Yeah, usually writing very, very bitter things about whatever's happening at Tottenham. That's kind of part yeah. of my job description, unfortunately, I think. Yeah, it's, it's all, it all feels very retro with Spurs right now, doesn't it? Because they used to be crap. They've been almost really good for so long now that you kind of forget. And, and here we are again. Yeah, it's like talking of hugging. It's like slipping back into a, well, a very cold, loveless embrace, but something which feels familiar nonetheless. It's like a base level. You, you know, you get on the tube in the morning, you go to work and you have that sort of annoyance in the pit of your stomach. And I haven't had that for a long time. And now that it's back, I've realized actually this was Spurs all along. There's nothing wrong with my life. I was just, <laughs> just irritated by whatever was happening with my football team. Absolutely appalling. And uh, let's stay in the digital world, Ian. I think I think that was yeah, that was part let's. of my rider when I agreed to come on. I don't, you know, I don't really wanna yeah. no, no spurs. <laughs> no. It will be no surprise to anyone who follows you on Twitter, but one of the many reasons that you're very dear to me is that you watch a monstrous amount of football mm. and also still play football manager, which for some would seem like a busman's holiday, but you take your games pretty seriously, don't you? Yeah, I'm I'm not a broad gamer. I have a few sort of loyal friends that uh, have held over from my teenage years. But yeah, I I've been known during weeks off from my job, which is pretty much all football, to sink into a virtual football world. I, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to apologise for it. Like, it's a football was my first love and it's a hobby and I enjoy what I do and I think it's okay. I don't, there's never a point at which I've had enough of it, really. I've had enough of certain parts of it. So I kind of move into different places, into into quiet, safe spaces, if you like, um, as and when I need to. And, and that includes Football Manager. And you've seen the trailer for Football Manager 22. Yeah. Um, what, what did you think of it? Well, I, I'm 
excited, I try not to pay too much attention. I just want to dive straight into the game and discover things. I've I've paid attention to the new features and I'm interested in them, but I'm not I'm not one of those people that, that spends the time between the game releasing and seeing the trailer. Uh, speculating on how I might use them, I, I like to just to dive into the experience. If that yeah, makes sense. God, what sort of person would do well, that? <laughs> well, no, but it, it, it's more football manager trailers are, are usually they're very reliable and they're very fair and they're very instructive about what's in the game. I think in terms of I, I play a lot of other football games over the years and I feel like I've got what's best described as a trailer cynicism. You know, obviously we're talking in the week that uh, the new FIFA and the new Pro Evo are, are launching and, you know, they've come replete with usual kind of uh, marketing rhetoric. And so it's quite easy to tune that stuff out and just wait until the thing releases and then just go. That's that's kind of always been my approach, really. Yeah, I tell you, if you wanted to see something truly pathetic this morning, you should have seen me trying to play FIFA 22. Um, <laughs> the finally turned up full of head cold haven't really played a proper football game since sensible soccer it was just have it's, you it's the most middle-aged thing you've ever seen well that must be really difficult because I, i'm a i'm a huge sensible soccer fan to this day and obviously that was a one button game really yeah and i would still play it now if they kept updating it i think How have you found that adjustment in fact that could have been excellent tfa rl content just filming that scene <laughs> on your living room floor. <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't go well. No, I'll, no. I'll level with you. It really didn't go well. <laughs> just, just enough energy in me to frantically search the menu for training mode. So I'm probably going to need a little boot camp on there. But enough about that. The data hub is one of the big things that people are talking about on FM22. Where do you stand on data? And, and is this a sort of aspect of the game that, that you really want to see expanded? Or, or does this feel like sort of Alex Stewart territory? Well, it, it is Alex Stewart territory, but it's a territory that I, I quite enjoy. Probably best to, to give an example for from how I use data when I work. So let's say I've got theory. Say I'm writing something about how to fix a certain underperforming North London team's midfield. Data kind of plays the role of tour guide or lecturer when I'm exploring my theory, like I'm looking up where the ball is moving, who's moving the ball, who is pressing, who is letting the team down with their lack of pressing. These kind of things are kind of like um, an outline around the idea of framework. Um, within Football Manager, I suppose the first time I really started to to get interested in the data side of it was the last game, FM21, because I, I, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but I, I was managing Hamburg, who start obviously in uh, the Bundesliga's Vi and didn't have a lot of money to start with and I needed goals. And I I like to be able to go beyond the boundaries of scout merit recommendation, headline statistics and player ratings because I, for want of a better reason, Ian, it makes me feel more clever, um, which <laughs> which is, there's a relevance to that too because I, I as I've got older, and um, I'm sure people will be able to relate to this, I need a reason sometimes to be playing games. I need to feel vindicated in what I'm doing. I can't just do it for the sake of a little bit of fun or fulfilling time. I need to feel like I've quote unquote achieved something. And even if that's the inflation of my own ego, that's kind of good enough. And data is a good way of doing that because it's a it's very rewarding if you have the patience to sift through the, the data that the game was already giving you ahead of 2022, to be fair, then that's quite gratifying. I have to be honest, I'm really bad at using the data side of the game. Um, I'm, I, I tend to watch extended or comprehensive highlights, and then I, I would say, if anything, I skew towards the Kevin Keegan right. in you know emotional responses and such like. I think one of the ways in which I was thinking about this this morning on the tube in, and 
one of the one of the ways in which um I think I'll probably use it is I like a high pressing style. Like I let's be honest, I I just try and reproduce what Mauricio Pochettino did. Um but because the way in which I watch the games, I'm a highlights watcher. I'm not a kind of big chunks of the game. I like to go through the, the actual match today quite quickly. And it's very, very difficult within that context to kind of to note, for instance, if you've got like a, a three-man forward line, like who is actually pressing the ball and who's doing it well and who's leaving the gaps in behind. Because those sides of the game, like when when you when you, when your highlight starts and you see that uh, the ball is with uh, you know one of the opposition centre backs you're not really thinking about your defensive patterns. You're just thinking about, well, maybe interceptions, but also, oh God, don't concede. And that's the mindset. I still have a very childish mindset towards the game. So I think data is going to be a good way of, once I, once I exit the match day, of actually charting what my team is doing without the ball. The other big development that's that's come through here is the overlapping centre-back core. Yes. Or as, as it's known here, the wide centre-back attack. Now, I finished up as a football journalist in uh, 2017 and just about sort of saw Sheffield United and Chris Wilder starting to do well in the championship. And I could never get my head around the, the number of pundits who went, wow, Sheffield United, grim 442. I was like, no, they're not. <laughs> Have you watched them? Uh, they, they were the sort of the, the key team using this overlapping centre back. For anyone who doesn't know entirely what it was, what, what is it? Fun. Ian. Um, so <laughs> I like fun. I actually, I covered Sheffield United's first game back in the Premier League uh, at Dean Court against Bournemouth. And the overlapping, overlapping centre-back dynamic is, I knew about it before I watched them in the flesh for the first time, but it's actually quite startling because, um, you know, to, to make it simple, if you imagine a back three and you imagine um, that back three shape kind of penduluming, 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 Goodness, let's not do that word again. Um, if you imagine it kind of, well, let's just say it's rocking. That's an easier word, isn't it? Um, then it means that your outside centre back kind of has license to go as far up the pitch and as wide as possible to create an overlap in zones that he typically wouldn't infiltrate. So, for instance, he might be part of the dynamic which springs a full back to the byline, for instance, or probably a wing back in this instance. But he might be part of a phase which is taking place around the edge of the opposition's box or even deeper. So that game at Dean Court, there's a lot to take in. And obviously, you've already mentioned it, it was a day when they kind of started correcting a lot of the perceptions about them, which, let's be honest, were based around their manager's accent and the part of England where they come from. It was literally as lazy as that, I think, really. But the press box at Dean Court is very, very close to the pitch. And so you're you're almost right on the touchline. And it was quite startling because I, I think that day it would have been Chris Basham was going within five, ten yards of the opposition goal line. So it's very aggressive, but what you don't see or what you probably don't, what your eyes aren't probably drawn to in the moment is all the things which have to happen to compensate. So you need to have like a, a deep midfielder dropping into the space that's been vacated or a wing back doing the same thing. So it's a really complex bit of a kit. It's a, a bit of a kind of um, a Swiss watch of a tactic. Because it's new, I, I think a lot of people are going to go straight for it. Whoever you manage is going to end up having overlapping centre-backs, whether you know, they're going to have a, kind of a pair of pair metasackers on the outside of their back three, but they're still going, to be, still going to be playing 80 yards up the field. And I think a lot of people are going to be found out because it's something that, um, well, you have to have a good set of coaches to do it in real life. So I'd imagine that would be the same football manager, but it's, uh, it's fun. I mean, if you've got the centre-backs pushing out that far wide, what, what do you do with the full-backs? Do you give them licence to get up? Or would you want them then to come in and essentially be 
of auxiliary midfielders. I think I want them pushing up, Ian, because I, I think one of the benefits is if you use your overlapping centre-back to create a numerical mismatch somewhere, I want to be able to capitalise on that. I don't necessarily want my overlapping centre-back to be actually on the byline and cutting into the box. I want a more dynamic player. So like I, I want a, an Ender Stevens in that position, perhaps, or I want a ball player. So I, I, I don't think there's a halfway house. If you're going to employ the tactic, then I think you have to go the whole way and be aggressive with your wing backs. I'll go for it initially, but I'm sure that will involve a, a, a an aborted save and a, a restart. I, I'm very much the kind of <clears throat> middle-aged proper football man who's going to stick with two no-nonsense centre-backs and just see how this one pans out, you know? To, and you're just going to stand in your technical area encouraging and demanding more. and Yeah, know, just, just, just run about a bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the important thing is wanting it more. Like that, yeah. that's, that's fundamentally it's what the eternal currency of football. <laughs> How did you do on Football Manager 21? Because it's, it's sort of sad, really. It's very sad for me because I've got this West Ham 2001 Mad Professor game that's going really, really well. And I know that there's no point getting too into it because a new one's coming out. But as this chapter closes, um, how did you do? I'm not afraid to say brilliantly. <laughs> And it is hilariously so because be? I play in really irregular patterns. So um, I probably play in total for three or four weeks of a year, but very, very intensely. And then I stop completely. I get infected by the bug and go for it. And it fills up all my spare time for about a month. And then I, I reach a point in the game where I've kind of, remember earlier I said I, I kind of want to feel like I've achieved something. I get to that point and then I stop and then I don't play for a very, very long time. So long story short, my wife and I moved to Germany earlier this year and we moved to Hamburg so I married into a, a family of Haasval fans and I thought well this is a good way for me to get to know Haasval and German football and also to the restore a fallen giant which is the kind of the the thing which always seduces me like I've in English football I quite like taking control of forest yeah that's the stuff anyway promoted back to the Bundesliga within one season finished sixth in the second season and second to Bayern Munich in the third season. So we're back in the Champions League. And I feel like I, I discovered a little bit of a loophole in the game in that um, I managed to loan Curtis Jones from Liverpool for three consecutive seasons. It seemed like something funny was going on. Like I'd taken advantage of a glitch because they would just cheerfully wave him off every time. He was just an excellent player that didn't belong anywhere near my team, but sat behind um, well, what became Dusan Vlavic at the top of my formation and was set the uh, set the Bundesliga ablaze but it was great because it now I, I I can sit with my brother-in-law and my father-in-law and we can talk about a sort of harsh file players and obviously now it's been converted into kind of real life observations and real life opinions but um, in the beginning it taught me who Moritz Heyer was and Manuel Winsheimer and, and these players that I had no idea about and it, it gave me a little sketch on what they were as players, which makes it much easier when you actually watch them to notice the things that they do well. It's been one of those, and this might just be me justifying the time I spent on it, but it's been a it's been a good real life exercise. Yeah, obviously I'm a fabulous football manager player. <laughs> and so humble too. Well, this is the thing, Ian, because I don't often get the chance to talk about it. And I work for TIFO and when it comes to football manager, all roads at TIFO lead to Alex Stewart and you know I see him and you sort of slaving away with Schalke and Stuttgart and I just sit there quietly smugly laughing thinking well you know. <laughs> it's like someone who enters I don't know one tennis tournament a year one only 
wins it and then doesn't do anything for the rest of the year. That's that's kind of me at Football Manager. I'm very, very much looking forward to uh, the next TIFO Football Manager Challenge then because it sounds like he is on. <laughs> Just before you go, when you do get FM22, oh no, I was trying to hold a sneeze and I could... <laughs> oh, nearly had it. Just before you go, Seb, FM22, just weeks away, have you already decided what team you're going to be? Yeah, I will probably have a crack at Spurs first off, um, just because for quite a few years, I couldn't bear the idea of taking Mauricio Pochettino's job, so I couldn't manage Spurs. <laughs> like, I couldn't, I didn't want to... I didn't want to push him out. So it feels like now that I dislike so many elements of the club, I don't mind coming in and mutually terminating everyone. I used to have the same thing with Southend and Steve Tilson back in the day, but oddly not a problem now. No. <laughs> Seb Stafford, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Ian. You're listening to the Football Manager podcast by The Athletic. But are you reading The Athletic? My word, you certainly should be. It's brilliant. Remember when people used to wonder why there wasn't a daily football newspaper in the UK, like there is in Spain and Italy? Well, this is it. It exists. It's the best writers writing the best stuff. No clickbait. It's all there. Because you listen to the Football Manager podcast by The Athletic, you get a very special deal. Just visit theathletic.com forward slash gaming and you'll find all the terms and conditions. That's theathletic.com forward slash gaming. Get stuck in. The Football Manager Show, Position of the Week. It's Position of the Week, and I'm joined by CJ Ramson from Sports Interactive. CJ, how are you doing? Happy to be back. Um, let's get another position. Absolutely. And this is one that I don't think I've ever used it because I've never really understood it, which I guess is why this feature exists. It's <laughs> centre midfield defend. Now, I've had a lot of joy with, well, I say a lot of joy. Let me qualify that. I've, I've won more than I've lost with a centre midfield attack, particularly when it's someone who makes late runs and gets up to support the strikers. Centre midfield support is basically, I would say, like your ultimate vanilla position. That <laughs> is like yeah. playing Dungeons and Dragons as a human warrior. Like <laughs> everyone uses centre, central midfield support. But centre midfield defend, why would you have one of those and not a defensive midfielder? So it's quite a unique role in terms of how it plays and how it acts. Um, like you kind of said, the central midfield attack, it's surprisingly good and in the right system, it can really work for you. And it's similar with the central midfield defence. Sometimes you don't want to go for a full-on defensive midfielder or you might want a defensive player in the midfield strata, but you don't want to use a deep-line playmaker, for instance, or a ball-winning midfielder. You want them to be a little bit more vanilla, but still stick on the defensive side of duties and it works really well for that also if you have a player with really low passing so the opposite of a deep line playmaker for instance but you want them to be able to win the ball back and you want them to be involved in your midfield maybe not quite as robust as a ball win midfielder but not quite as technical as a deep line playmaker it's a really good midfield role to use that will kind of pick up those defensive positions and keep the structure of your team now is this like a Good antidote to the overly aggressive ball-winning midfielder, which I, I had with Scott Brown at Celtic once, where because he had an aggression of 20 
and player traits like lunges into tackles and deliberately tries to break people's bones. And, and I mean, not really, <laughs> but he may as well have done. And when he had him set to ball-winning midfielder, he was just like a guard dog let off the leash. <laughs> yeah. If if I'd have used him as a central midfield defender, would that have been a more conservative, sensible use of his talents? I'd say that is that situation when it should be used. So when you have a ball-winning midfielder and maybe they're a bit too enthusiastic on the ball-winning, you can kind of tone it down by asking them to play a kind of central midfield defend because ball-winning midfielder, it doesn't make them play more aggressive or more dirty. It just makes them kind of run and cover more ground and be more active in that way. So obviously if you match that up with high aggression and high tackling and that kind of thing, it, it doesn't always end well. Whereas a central midfield defend, they'll kind of hold the position a bit more and play a bit more conservative. That was actually how I discovered it personally. I never used to use it kind of in my personal playthroughs. And then I had a ball winning midfielder who was a bit too aggressive. And I started using a central midfield defend and um had much better results. And it's in a few of the presets as well. But I'd say it's a very underrated role, which plays kind of exactly how we'd want it on the tin. Now, in some of the things we've discussed over this series, we, we've talked about overloading the players with instructions. And that if you take over at a club and you you kind of say, right, I want a deep lying midfielder there. I want a Metzala there. I want an inverted fullback here. You can actually cause yourself more harm because the players will take ages to figure it out. And in the meantime, you'll lose half the season. If you were to have a central midfield defend and a, a centre midfield attack, I mean, would that be basically like a keep things simple 80s, 90s English team sort of vibe? Yeah, especially in a 4-4-2. I mean, I've never done it myself, but I can imagine if you're playing lower leagues or in kind of one of the smaller nations, that could be really effective because sometimes you see this in real life as well. It's not always best overloading the players with instructions, especially if you, the players don't have the technical ability or the mental attributes to kind of play such a complicated system. So sometimes it's worth going almost back to basics and just saying, you're in the middle and we need you to sit. You're in the middle, we need you to burst forward. Maybe I wouldn't do it if I was managing Manchester City, but if I was managing kind of a smaller team, I'd probably go that way, yeah. Asking for for a friend, <laughs> if you are in charge of, I don't know, let's say a struggling West Ham team and things were going awry, is this a good way of getting it? back on track just going look you're just in the middle defend well funnily enough one of the first players I used in that role was Declan Rice because he kind of had perfect defensive midfielder attributes but I didn't really want him as my deep line playmaker I didn't want all the play to go through him I kind of wanted him to just focus on being positionally sound and winning the ball back so um it can still be used at Premier League level. Like I said, it's almost my go-to defensive midfield role when I am using it. So it's it's definitely useful. It's just worth trying it with different players in your squad and finding the right player for that balance. CJ, are there any are there any limitations on this role? Like if if you use a centre midfield defend, you you're giving up the ability to use that slot for more creativity, aren't you? Perfectly said, actually. So lots of times that would be the benefit of the deep line playmaker is that you can kind of have a defensive midfield role which also creates and also try to break lines where the central midfield defend won't try to do that as often so it's all about what you mix and match them with of course if you go a central midfield defend and pair them with an advanced playmaker then you won't feel the creativity knock as much if you obviously pair them with say a box-to-box -box midfielder or a role that's not quite as creative then you would sacrifice that a little bit all right that's center midfield defend that was cj ramson and um, more of this next time Football Manager Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. 
It's time for your letters or, you know, more accurately, your emails. If you've got anything you want to say, anything you want to ask, any specific tips you're looking for, just drop us a line. It's imacintosh at theathletic.com or you can usually find me on Twitter, Ian underscore games. Producer Steve, who have we got today? First up, we've got James McAllister, and he asks the following. A past playing experience and coaching badge is a bit like difficulty levels. So, for example, if I selected a top flight team but select no badges or experience, is that like playing the game on hard mode, inverted commas? Or if I select a championship club but use the highest rated coaching badges and playing experience... Is that like playing on easy? You know, I believe you have the answer to this yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Football manager doesn't have a clearly marked difficulty level. It's not like a easy, normal and hard level. This bit of the game is basically it. The best way to think about it is to think about it as, as real life, which is one good way of getting around most problems in football manager. If you or I... Steve, mm. was to take up a position at Manchester City tomorrow, there would be all sorts of media outcry and the first day at training would be probably a little bit like Ted Lasso, but without the, you know, wholesome, good-natured <laughs> humour. Uh, everyone would hate us, and rightly so. None of the players would trust us. They almost certainly wouldn't listen to us, and largely because we wouldn't really know what we were doing at that level. And the game will represent that. So, yeah, starting with no badges and no reputation at a Premier League team is... Uh, the, the word hard doesn't really do justice to it. Equally, if you were to take over, say, Chelmsford with Pep Guardiola levels of um, uh, of experience, you would find a tremendous reaction to absolutely everything you did. Every team talk you gave would light up the screen with green. Every request you made to your board would, would almost certainly be granted, assuming that they could. Having the top-level knowledge in players removes the fog of war from all of your scouting. <laughs> so that you can pretty much instantly tell everyone who's good and, and how good. The key is just sort of to set a level that matches the kind of game that you want to play and also leaves a little bit of room for progression. So the game that I, I like to play is always rescuing a sort of faded team of the 90s, you know, a, a sort of Norwich or a Nottingham Forest. And I always think a realistic starting point would be a, a professional footballer, probably a sort of national reputation, so sort of talking Troy Deeney level. And I always assume that, you know, if you're going to manage a big club, you've done all your coaching badges. So you have that set. But equally, some people love a game, and we may be looking at this with FM22, some people love a game where you just start with absolutely nothing and you do your badges as you go and you work your way up. So it is like difficulty level. <laughs> be really, really careful how you set it. So, and asking for a friend here, obviously, if you want an easy life, you would set everything as to the top level. So from the get-go, people listen to you. Yeah, completely. And one of the ways you can really benefit yourself, if that's what you're looking to do, <laughs> you set your own, your own parameters for your own game. If you're managing in the lower leagues and you've got attribute points to spend on your manager, I would always advise splashing them out on like fitness coaching or goalkeeping coaching or anything like that, because you'll be at a small club. You won't have much of a coaching budget. So you can be the sort of dream level coach that you could never possibly hire at that level. <laughs> and that will save you some time. Equally, if you're at the top, managing your players and and getting on with them is so important, then I'd spend all of those points on you know, the man management stats because at that level, you'll be able to afford all the coaches you need anyway, so there's probably no point worrying about it too much. It's great. It's, it's a really neat way of customising the game to whatever sort of challenge you're looking for. 
Yeah, great question. Thanks for sending that in, James. I think, Ian, you've got one next for us. Last one from Charlie Parsons says, uh, just found your podcast, really love it. God bless you, Charlie. What do you do when you first start a game? Because I find it very daunting. That's a really good question. That That's one that, that does come up quite a lot on, on Twitter because when you start it, particularly if you haven't played it in a few years, there's a lot of information. I find the best thing to do is just not rush it. Just take your time. In one session of playing it, you don't even have to go off and play a match. Just take your time and get to know your team. The way I always do it is to take off the filters. You've got senior squad, under 23 squad, under 18 squad, all of them together and arrange them by their wage and start with the cheapest player, basically, your youth team and sort of go through and just have a little look at them and on a bit of paper with a pencil, sketch out two lineups. One's like your future lineup and one's your current lineup. And you just work your way up from the cheapest player right up to the biggest earner at the football club, um, continually sort of sketching and crossing out until you've figured out basically what your best team is and what your highest potential team is. And once you've done that, you've got a far clearer idea of what you've got to do next in terms of, is this a team that is already well set and that that you should now sit there and work on tactics to get the best out of them? Or is it a team with some really obvious gaps, in which case you want to spend your time on recruitment and trying to fill those gaps? And uh, that's still pretty much every game that I ever play starts like that. Big pot of tea, bag of mint imperials. Perfect. So that's the Macintosh method for starting the game there. And if you want a bit more information on that, do go back through the Football Manager pod feed specifically episode 19 back to basics where there's some really great advice in terms of delegating to if you sort of start the game and it's like i don't care about the training schedule you can delegate away that's another additional thing that and and there's loads more great tips in there on that episode in, in the show lovely stuff alex stewart from tifo what else do you play i'm obsessed with civilization six The reason I like it so much is that it is a complex, multifaceted strategy game. There are vast numbers of different things to consider, everything from how much money you're raising through taxes to your technological advancements. You have to balance creating an army for your own defense with being able to pay for it and that army being sufficiently advanced. There's religion, which adds a whole other layer of complexity. Each individual civilization has its strengths and weaknesses, and so you have to work out how best to harness those. The variety that you can get as well, obviously generating different map types, you have different adversaries, so your strategy, even if you play as the same civilization every single time, your strategy will vary based on who your opponents are, what your map is like. It never stops. It's kind of like football in that regard. There is no end to what you can do with it and how much it gets you thinking about stuff. And it also teaches you a bit as well about history, which is interesting. You can play online, which is also great fun. And you can have AI in that game as well. So it might be just two people and then six other civilizations that the computer's running, or you could play as a host of people, just your friends, vying off against each other, which is particularly fun actually, because it always gets towards that point where one of you is in the ascendancy and needs to be checked. And then you have to kind of balance your level of friendship with, with how much you want to ensure that the other person doesn't win. Um, if we are using the one pound per hour of entertainment, value, would you say that this game offers good value? Oh, enormously good value. 
And that's because there's like maybe eight or nine different difficulty levels. There's probably getting on for 20 or 25 different civilizations now. So even if you were to simply play as every individual civilization on the most basic level, it would more than pay for itself. And obviously after that, you can then start doing various challenges and set yourself different tasks and try and win as a leader with one particular victory type that really doesn't suit their advantages, that kind of stuff. It's just always fun. Civilization VI, basically once it's sucked you in, you'll never stop wanting to play it. And that's it. That's our show. Thank you so much for putting up with my voice and my snotty nose. Hey, if you like the podcast, like it. Or, you know, write a review for it. We love them. Uh, your guest today was Seb Stafford Bloor and Alex Stewart of the TIFO and CJ Ramson from Sports Interactive. Your producer was Steve Hankey. And I may not sound like it, but I'm Ian McIntosh. The Athletic.